third last book uh, on the Bible in the Old Testament, and it's Haggai. We're working our way through Haggai. It's a short book, four sermons on it. And what we're saying is that this book is about putting God first. This book is putting God first. And what we're looking at today is the Haggai awakening. And once we have the offering completed, hi. So my deal is 23 minutes, that's what we're targeting as a church for our sermons. It is now 10 to 11, we'll go till about, oh, I was going to try to get myself an extra hour, I'll pay for that afterwards as well. I thought you wouldn't uh, notice that one. So we're going to go till just after 10 past 11. Let's pray before we look, 12, let's pray. Father, we we pray, think, thanking you for your gifts to us, and we bring you all uh, that we have, not just what we own, but who we are to you. And we pray that you would help us in the building of your kingdom. Uh, for your name's sake, amen. Okay, so the last few verses of the book of Haggai. I want to talk about the Haggai awakening. What I'll do, Sarah, is we'll put up the first slide. Uh, and the reason is, so it goes on to the next one. Because uh, sometimes what you need to do is you need to read this before I start, because otherwise you're going to be distracted. Now, let me tell you about something that went on in America, in Kentucky, from where you're from, Jacob, uh, the state of Kentucky. There is a theological seminary by the name of Asbury. I grew up hearing about Asbury Seminary because I am from a Methodist background, and Asbury was the sort of evangelical seminary in America of Methodism and that movement. Uh, some of the great people I like to read uh, are associated with that college. So it delighted me to hear what was going on there recently. What happened was that in a church service in their local chapel for the students, a student got up, I think he was a student, he read from Romans 12, which is a chapter about love. He actually was very humble, the, the whole thing was understated, there was no hype. And he preached about love. He, he challenged people because he said, look at all these commands to love. And the truth is that we can't do it on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can love. And, and then he just said, now, now think about that. And no one went home. It started on the 24th of February. No, sorry, January, February the 8th this year. And 16 days later, the, the college authorities said, well, we, we need to bring you down from the mountain so that you can go out and serve the Lord. Now, now it wasn't the same people for the full 16 days. Uh, people were turning over, but there was a simple, what they called awakening, an awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, people were getting up and sharing testimonies. It was all not flash. No celebrity preacher, no, you know, massive professional praise bands. It was all just very simple. People were confessing their sins. People were asking for a deeper relationship with God. People were apologizing and saying to, saying to God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to change? Wouldn't we love something like that here? Isn't that what we want? Like, I, I don't know about you, but I look at myself, and sometimes I get frustrated with me because I'm so slow to change. 
and I need to change. Any of us who have had any sense of self-realization know we need to change. And we need times where the Holy Spirit is very evident in our midst as a church and as people. But one of the things I'm going to say, though, is that it's not just the mountaintop. It's what we do when we come down from the mountain. And you see, what I'm saying here is that was called the Asbury Awakening. So what I did is I listened to a, a guy I trust who, who showed me to a video of a, a quite a conservative scholar talking about this. And, and he was talking about what was going on. He said it was marked by three things. Look to these beautiful things that mark the Asbury Awakening. Radical humility. Radical humility. Wow. A, a thirst for purity. Remember, this is a bunch of students, and, and you can sure that, that, that purity is, is a big thing. And a spiritual hunger. And he said that the, the events around Asbury were marked by lots of Bible, lots of prayer, and lots of focus on Jesus. Someday what I want you to do is I want you to come up after service, and I want you to look at this, what we call it, a lectern. Um, and here we have actually words that are to be a reminder to every preacher. It says, sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's a quote from John 12, where the people come and they say, we want to see Jesus. And that's a challenge for anyone who gets into this pulpit. It must not be about the preacher. It must not be about entertainment. It must be about Jesus. That must be the focus. So here's the question, and, and this is why I think what happened in Asbury is so relevant for the book of Haggai. Because last week we saw that the people came back from exile in 520 BC, and God spoke to them. No, they didn't come back from exile. In well, they came back. They had been back from exile in 520 BC. They'd actually been back for 18 years. And God spoke to them on the 29th of August that year, and he said, I am not a priority to you. Look, you came back, 50,000 of you came back from exile. You had a calling. The calling was to rebuild a temple. But what did you do? You didn't rebuild the temple. It lies there in ruins. You built yourself fine paneled houses. It wasn't that you weren't capable of work. It's just that you weren't capable of putting me first. And so he challenges them to get their priorities straightened. And, and here's the reason why the Asbury thing of the awakening strikes me with this passage. That was last week's passage was the 29th of August that year. Now on the 21st of September, just over three weeks later, we read that God spoke again and the people worked. They set about rebuilding the temple. They got their priorities straight. And the question I have is, what did God do to take a selfish people like you and me who don't wake up in the morning and think, I want to put God first. What did he do that made a selfish, materialistic, apathetic people all of a sudden go and build a temple? What happened? 
What's the explanation? And these verses that we've had at the end of Haggai chapter 1 tell us exactly what happened. And I'm calling it the Haggai awakening. Because God woke the people up. And what does he need to do to wake you and me up? Well, three things. You'll not be surprised because I try to always have three points. But three things. He spoke to them. He made a promise to them. And he stirred their hearts. He spoke to them. He made a promise to them. He stirred their hearts. Remember I said the Asbury Awakening. Guy gets up. He was a very... uh, I saw him just at the opening. He was a very sort of understated guy. He said something like, hi, I'm Nick, and I'm back. And, and, and then he just started to, to straightforwardly preach the word. And that's what happens in verse 12. God sends Haggai with the word, and you'll see it's to the whole of the remnants. My understanding of the remnant here is that it's everyone who came back from exile. 50,000 of them. He spoke to the whole of that remnant. He spoke to them. That's what God does to wake us up. How do you need to be woken up this morning? How do you need to be woken up this morning? You know, do you need to be woken up so that we, we stop giving out? We stop criticizing. We stop complaining. That we get over our grudges that we start to live a life of thankfulness? Do we, do we need an awakening? Are there, are there sins in our lives that we've compromised with, and over time we've just become comfortable with them? Do we need to be woken up? How's God going to do it? He's going to do it by speaking to us. He sent the prophet. And, and the reason I chose First Peter for our New Testament reading, which Lammy read for us, was I spent a week down with my parents during the sabbatical, I spent a week down with my parents, and we worked one day a, a week through First Peter. And I was really struck as a preacher by the words of First Peter 4, verse 11. And anyone who ever gets into this, you don't get into the pulpit, but you know what I mean. Anyone who stands here and speaks needs to remember these words. If anyone speaks, and I think he's speaking about preaching in the church here, do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Now, that sets the agenda. That means I can't stand here this morning and, and talk about my pet hobbies. I have to talk about God's Word. Because that's, that's you, you can't say one who speaks the very words of God if you're not speaking the very words of God. That's why in this church we emphasize what we call expositional preaching, which just means that you go through book by book or passage by passage, and what you do is you explain it and apply it. It's as simple as that. You explain it and you apply it. And sometimes the preaching of God's Word should leave you with a sense of lightness. Sometimes you should leave this place with a big smile on your face. Because you have come here this morning and you're worried about something. You've come here this morning and you're confused about something. And the word speaks. And the word lifts a burden from you. And you're ministered to by the word. And we can do that to each other as well. 
You know, when we sit over coffee and we speak God's words to each other, applying them. And sometimes that leaves you with a a lightness. But there are other times where you should leave church or with people. You should leave church with a sense of burden added onto you. You should leave your church with almost a heaviness. And the reason being is because the word has challenged you deeply. You might have come here this morning thinking that all is well in your life. But as you think about the word of God, as you you think about what God is saying to you, as he applies the word to you, you go realizing there's things that need to change in your life. And you actually go home with a sense of burden. And that's good. There was a a girl in London. She was studying in London Bible School. She went to hear the great preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This was (coughs) in the 60s. And this is what she said about listening to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. She said, time and again, coming home from church, I went straight to my room, locked the door, and went straight to my knees and prayed. That's the way the word sometimes works in conversation, in Bible study, from the pulpit. Things that you thought were fine. The Holy Spirit. Let's move on to the second thing that he does. I should say, I think it was Martin Luther, just as I was just thinking about this sermon before getting up, something came to my mind. I think it was Martin Luther who said this, don't just read the word, let the word read you. Does that make sense? Don't just read the word, let the word read you. Let it speak into your heart. Second thing to say, God promises. Look at verse 13. I, I actually had tears in my eyes when I was, I was writing this sermon when I was down with my parents. Think about what he says to them. This is his message. Verse 13, can you see it? I am with you. That was the message. That was the message that was spoken to a people who were about to set about a difficult task of building the temple. There were nations around those people who were set on making sure that those people did not prosper. They had enemies. They had division within the camp. They had criticism. They had the whole thing. And what does God say to them? I am with you. As you think about applying this message to your own life when you go home today, in whatever way God is challenging you, can you remember that the heart of this sermon is I, God says, am with you. In fact, the the title that God uses in this passage, in this book, it keeps coming again and again and again, is he's called the Lord Almighty, sometimes translated the Lord of hosts, or more literally, the Lord of armies. In other words, he's a strong God. And he says, as you go about living for me, I am with you. That's a a promise that goes right throughout the whole Bible. Think of Jacob 
Jacob was a deceiver in Genesis. He was a nasty piece of work. He wasn't a nice man in any way. And God met him and changed him. And God said, I am with you. I will be with you and I will keep you wherever you go, Genesis 28, 15. Think about Joshua. Think about Joshua in the Old Testament. Imagine, like, imagine what Joshua's called to do. First of all, he's called to lead the people into the promised land. And one of the things you have to remember is that the reason the people were sent to the promised land was actually because the people of the promised land were very wicked. That was part of the thing. And this people, it's intimidating. You're going, like, here were people in the promised land who sacrificed their own children to gods in ritual worship. These are a vicious, violent people, and he's got to lead a people who has spent the last 40 years complaining against his last leader, who was possibly one of the best leaders that the, the people of God ever had. Imagine taking over the mantle from Moses. With that task, and God says, I am with you wherever you go. And then it's a New Testament promise. Whose name meant I am with you? Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the promise of God being with you. And at the end of the day, he sends the people out into all the world, the last verse of Matthew's gospel, and he says to those people, we're facing a daunting task. You can read about it in the book of Acts, and there will be persecution. And he says, I will be with you till the very end of the age. And he hasn't yet returned, so that promise is for now. The last, or no, the first person to die of AIDS in the United Kingdom was a young Christian doctor. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, a preacher, talks about it. This young doctor had been a missionary doctor in Bulawayo in Zimbabwe, and through some blood interaction in his practice, contracted the virus. And he came home and he deteriorated as HIV turned to AIDS, and he was no longer able to communicate. And so what he did was, like those boards there, he, his wife got him a board to mark letters on to try and communicate. And one day, he just could scroll out something that looked like J. And his wife went through the alphabet not knowing what he was trying to say until she realized he was saying Jesus. And what he was trying to communicate to his young wife as he is dying of AIDS is that Jesus is all I need. I am with you, says God to you. Last thing, he stirs them up. So he's taken this selfish, self-centered, materialistic people, and they start to work. Notice in verse 14, he stirs up, it says, Zerubbabel, the high priest, Joshua, no, Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, Joshua, the high priest, and the whole spirit of everybody. And then they began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty. I'm, I'm going to speed up a little bit here because I do want to keep to time. But do you remember last week I said, in some ways, the temple points us to Jesus. 
In John's Gospel, chapter 2, Jesus says, knock down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And he's talking about his body. And, and the temple was the place you went to meet God. And what he's saying is, now you come to meet me. And so temple work involves making Jesus look good. That's what you want to do as a, a temple person. To, to build the temple today is to show the world how beautiful Jesus is. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, he also talks about the temple being us, his church built on Jesus Christ. That you and me are stones in a temple that Jesus is building. And if you want building, if you want that church, if you want the church of Jesus Christ, which is not just LBC, but any other church of people with us, if you want Jesus to look good through this temple, you concentrate on what am I as a stone in that temple. And one of the things that struck me reading through 1 Peter chapter 3 is it's so much more than what we do, it's who we are. The greatest ministry that you have in this church is not any official ministry. It's simply in being. It's about being more like Jesus. Now, positions don't matter. The greatest ministry, and look at some of the things that 1 Peter says. He speaks to wives in chapter 3. But these are words for all of us. He says, your beauty should not be your outward adornment, but that we should collect, and I think these are beautiful words, the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart. That's what we, we work on. That's how we become beautiful. That's how, how we prepare ourselves as a stone within the temple. Imper and look at this, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in God's eyes. 1 Peter 3, verse 4. Isn't that beautiful? The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious. Surely these words are words that come home and convict all of us. 1 Peter 3, he talks to husbands, and he says, you know, if you're harsh towards your wives, do not expect God to answer your prayers, because he will not be pleased with you. Sometimes we say God listens to every prayer, but sometimes God actually says, if you're unforgiving and harsh, don't expect me to listen. Get that sorted out first. And, and I could go on in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers again. 1 Peter 4, verse 7 to 11, above everything else, be sure that you have a deep love for each other. Above everything else, have a deep love. Is that your ambition for this community? Is that what your ambition is to come here this morning? Is that your ambition, that people would see the deep love that we have for each other? Because that will make the temple of Jesus Christ look beautiful. Above everything else, deep love. Practice hospitality, and I love how one translator, J.B. Phillips, put it. Without, it says, practice hospitality without secretly wishing you didn't have to do so. And we're not naturally people, I'm finishing now, we're not naturally people who do this. I don't naturally wake up in the world 
in the morning saying, I want to put God first. I wake up in the morning saying, I want to put me first. So what do we do? How do we have this Haggai awakening? Hear God's word. Speak it to yourself. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the problem is that we, we s- listen to ourselves too much, but we don't speak to ourselves enough. Speak the gospel to yourself. Second of all, take God's promises. Take God's promises. I am with you, he says, whatever you have to do. It's too much. I can't forgive that person. Yes, you can. God is with you. And let the Holy Spirit stir you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's always relevant. And I pray, Father, that we would really think seriously about how you're challenging us to to change. And Father, if there's any person here in this room, including myself, who thinks they don't need to change, show them how they can change. And help us be people who are quick to say sorry, who spend our time thinking things from others' perspective, who are ready to forgive even when the person that we have to forgive doesn't see what they've done wrong against us, and who tame our tongues, that we would be soft, so that you and your church would be beautiful. Amen.